Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 117. I'm going to be flying solo for this particular episode because I want to tackle a big topic that is actually remarkably overlooked but extremely important in the baseball world. We're going to be talking about joint hypermobility, how to evaluate it, how to manage it, and just appreciate its overall role in the game and how we keep players healthy and performing at a high level. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive NSF certified for sport daily nutritional supplement I've ever tried. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients they need to thrive. As a father of three young kids and a co-founder of multiple businesses in multiple states, on top of still being an avid exerciser, I know that busy schedules can really take their toll on us. Whether it's poor sleep, exercise or life stressors, environmental factors, or simply not eating enough of the right foods, we can wind up deficient nutritionally. This is where Athletic Greens can really help. It's a game-changing nutritional insurance policy. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things. And that's why I use it daily and recommend it to our athletes. One scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. They work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase energy and focus, aid in digestion, recovery, and supporting of a healthy immune system. This all can happen without taking multiple products. While most nutritional products come to market and stay stagnant, Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53 improvements over the last decade. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best daily nutritional habit on the planet. It's lifestyle friendly whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free and contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. They put 75 ingredients to the NSF for sport certification to come up with a formula that's trusted by some of the world's best athletes, including our own. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving our listeners 10 free travel packets with their subscription. Simply go to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy to receive my offer. These travel packs are perfect for supporting your immune system, energy, and gut health when you're traveling for games, training, or simply when you're on the go. They can be a great counterbalance to less than ideal on-the-road food options. So if you want to bridge the gap between deficient and optimal and give yourself the best chance to get nutrient diversity, then head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and get your 10 free travel packets today. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. Welcome to episode 117. As I mentioned in our opening, I'm going to try to tackle a big topic here, uh, joint hypermobility and how it relates uh, to the baseball and softball world. But there will be some key principles that I think apply to all disciplines, regardless of whether we're talking about swimmers or just folks in the general population that also have encountered that, whether they're trainers or rehab specialists working with folks who have it or actual end users, patients, you know, weekend warriors, things like that. So um, like I mentioned, this is a big topic uh, to take on. So what I did was I actually tried to narrow my focus a little bit and come down with the 10 key training considerations uh, for people with hypermobility. And I think, you know, just starting off number one for me is going to be, we have to appreciate that it actually is a thing. And there's a collection of, you know, folks out there that, you know, whether they're just maybe not in tune with the right assessment measures or just because they don't think to look at it um, may overlook the fact that this is actually a relatively prevalent thing in the general population. It's certainly more prevalent in certain populations than others. Um, so I think we can all, you know, 
you know, really, uh, you know, observe that young kids all tend to be hypermobile, right? Kids contort themselves in all kinds of crazy positions. I have twin seven-year-old daughters and a three-year-old daughter. All of them can hyperextend their elbows and do crazy things at gymnastics that, you know, their daddy can't even possible, you, you know, like undertake at age 40. So it is a thing. Um, we know that hypermobility is about three times higher in females. And there's actually some, um, some ethnic components to it as well. So it's more common in those of African, Asian, and Arab origin, where the incidence is actually estimated at greater than 30%. Um, obviously, that depends on how you, you know, classify it. And there's different ways to look at it, whether it's, you know, range of motion at a particular joint. We know that passive range of motion can be kind of tricky to assess, uh, depending on how, you know, meticulously you stabilize adjacent joints, how hard you push, all those different factors. Um, but the, the incidence in, in Caucasians is about 6%. Um, what is very interesting about the baseball world, though, is that it does seem to be substantially higher than the 6% number. So it's likely evident there's a, there's a component of natural selection at work, that this is something um, that we see more commonly in high-level throwers. And it may actually be advantageous for allowing them to you know, contort themselves into crazy positions and be successful in, in sometimes very high amplitude or high range of motion um, movements. So we know it's more common in, in females, generally more common in African, Asian, and Arab populations than in Caucasians. And it actually is more common in young individuals than the elderly. And, and certainly we'll see baseball players over the course of a career who just kind of lose out on some of that, that give to their ligaments. They become a little bit more stiff. Um, and what's interesting is that in the elderly, you know, when, when we see a lot of hypermobility, that the looser joints can actually increase your risk of, of premature osteoarthritis. Um, but what's intriguing though, is we, you know, we see a lot of folks as they get older that, that lose a lot of range of motion and, and there may actually be some protective benefits to that. Um, you know, we look at a lot of, you know, people with long-term low back pain, you very rarely see, you know, people with debilitating disc pain, um, you know, in their seventies and eighties, more often than not, that happens in their forties, fifties, sixties. And, you know, one of the hypotheses out there is that as the ligaments stiffen up, as we age, um, it may actually create a protective effect where we can't get into positions that might actually protect provoke things. Um, so we have to recognize that this is a thing. Um, you know, it's higher in certain populations. It's likely higher in baseball players in particular. Um, and we need to, you know, understand kind of how to measure it and how to interpret all these different things as we're working on these populations. Now, the question then becomes, how do you measure it? Um, and, and I use the Baton score, um, you know, as a quick and easy measurement, you know, kind of approach. Baton score is really just a, you know, a five part screen. Um, the fingers extend past 90 degree angle to the dorsal aspect of the hand. So, you know, uh, you look at a pinky, can it bend back past 90 degrees? Um, the thumb contacts the forearm with full flexion. So can you bend your thumb down and basically touch it to the, the front of your forearm? Uh, greater than 10 degrees of hyperextension at the elbow, greater than 10 degrees of hyperextension at the knee. And all of these four can be scored on both sides. And then, you know, can you put your palms flat on the floor with a toe touch movement? So, you know, theoretically, you get a nine out of nine if you're really hypermobile on this. And, you know, and certainly, uh, you know, if we look at, um, you know, some of the other factors that we can kind of contribute with is that, you know, the end feel can actually kind of be a subjective helper. Um, if we really think about end feel, you know, we know you, what, what a, what a, you know, really hard bony end feel really feels like. Um, certainly we know what like a true muscular end feel might feel like. Um, 
But when we're talking about hypermobile individuals, a lot of times it's kind of that empty, oh no, what happens if I keep pushing? It might actually, you know, dislocate on me. So a lot of these hypermobile folks really have this hollow end feel where if you feel like you keep pushing, you're going to run into some kind of trouble. So, um, you know, that for me is an important consideration. What's also interesting as you assess this is there was a study from Bigliani back in 1997 that found that 61% of professional pitchers and actually 47% of position players have a positive sulcus sign in their throwing shoulder, which is just a gross measure of, of laxity, of, of having a lot of range of motion, that shoulder having a lot of give from a ligamentous standpoint. But what was really intriguing about this study is that a lot of them had it, you know, the majority of them had it in their non-throwing shoulder as well. So this wasn't just an acquired thing in their throwing shoulder. It was something that we were actually seeing, um, you know, in, in the non-dominant side as well. So those are important considerations that kind of play into this discussion of natural selection. The last thing I would say is, is uh, my buddy Mike Reinold co-authored a study of MLB pitchers. I believe it came out in 2009 where he looked at average total motion. So shoulder internal plus external rotation in a big league, you know, pitching staff. And he found that the average was 190, 100, excuse me, 191 degrees. Um, so, you know, as in the back of my mind, you know, assuming we're using similar measurement techniques to what they use in that study, I've always just kind of thrown 200 degrees out as kind of a, a number I consider is that when, you know, an athlete walks in, they've got greater than 200 degrees of total motion, you know, and I often look at the non-dominant side as an indicator of it. We're probably dealing with someone, um, that is, you know, markedly more hypermobile. So, um, you know, those are, those are kind of quick and dirty measurements, whether it's a bait and score, you know, subjective end feel, um, looking at a sulcus sign, you know, and certainly looking at a greater total motion, you know, at these joints, uh, at the shoulder of, of over 200 degrees. I think if you look at all those things, big picture, you're probably going to get an appreciation for whether someone's really, really loose, um, I think the other thing I would tell you is be careful about saying that somebody's really loose just because you see one freaky joint. You know, you'll see scenarios where someone can, you know, really hyperextend their lead knee as a pitcher, but the rest of their body is really normal. That for me is more of an adaptation, you know, something that's, that's come about due to imposed demand, similar to what we would see with like a, a pitcher gaining, you know, a lot of retroversion at their shoulder or, or something to that effect. So, um, you know, point one was identify that's an issue and, and point two, you know, obviously is, is understand how to best measure measure it and, and then, you know, appreciate that you want to take it a little bit further. So which leads into to point three, it's vitally important for you to understand the difference between laxity and instability. And sometimes these, these words are used interchangeably. Laxity and, and hypermobility to me are, you know, are somewhat synonymous in the sense that it, it speaks purely just to the looseness of a joint. Um, and it usually occurs in multiple or all directions. Um, conversely, when we talk about instability, that term is associated with an element of pathology, right? So if I fall on an outstretched arm and I, you know, I have an anterior dislocation of my shoulder, I, you know, have a bankard injury and, you know, associated problems with hill sacs lesion or whatever it is, usually that's a instability in one direction. I have anterior instability in that situation. Um, you know, typically it's in one direction, but you know, you'll see scenarios where folks develop like a multi-directional shoulder instability, um, so certainly laxity can predispose an individual to instability, but it's very, very important to realize that they are not the same thing. Usually when we see instability, it's, you know, it's at one joint, it's related to some kind of traumatic event or, you know, or a chronic adaptation where, you know, a shoulder got looser and looser and looser. Um, so just understand you can be lax, you can be hypermobile, but not unstable, you know, because you, you understand how to control it and you haven't developed the, you know, pathology that goes with it. 
But you also have to realize that you can be unstable but not lax. Right? I've seen very tight athletes. You see anterior dislocations in rugby players who have, you know, brutally tight joints. Um, so we just need to appreciate that, you know, that's some of the stuff that, that may be at work. Okay. For our fourth consideration, recognize that hypermobile athletes can often make bad tests look good. So you would think that just because you see these, you know, arms and legs flying everywhere, you see this element of Gumby um, that's in place that, you know, it's going to be a little bit of a slam dunk assessment. It actually isn't. And, and the reason is very simply because most assessments are naturally biased towards those who are proficient with range of motion screens. And, and what's tricky about a lot of these hypermobile individuals is sometimes they can take these gross tests and make them look good even when they're terribly bad. So using a toe touch as an example, you might see someone who has zero posterior weight shift. They may just lock out their knees into hyperextension and put their hands flat on the floor without any element of like posterior weight shift. They won't find their hips at all. So really it's a, it's a knee dominant and spine dominant strategy that overlooks, you know, really we're trying to get into our hips. So one of our goals with working with hypermobile athletes is is to you know figure out a way to share stress over multiple joints instead of just getting an extreme amount of motion at one joint. Um, and laxity can make bad movement look good sometimes, you know, particularly if we're dealing with someone with an untrained eye. Um, and if you need a really good example of this, that maybe even takes a little bit further. If you if you look at the classic functional movement screen, which you know I do think is a great collection of of screens, and and we'll talk about it in a second here. But you know if you get a perfect shoulder mobility score, so kind of the fist to fist test where you know one shoulder or excuse me one arm is behind your back in kind of the handcuff position, and the other one's going in the top. So the top arm is externally rotated, the bottom arm is internally rotated. Um, you know, if you can get a three on both sides on that, it's, it's probably a pretty good sign in a baseball population that you have a lot of laxity. And the reason is simple. Usually a baseball throwing shoulder has a lot of acquired external rotation. They have more retroversion. And what that allows them to do is put their dominant arm on top and get way, way back. But it's going to be really hard for that, that dominant arm to kind of go into that handcuff position. And if they're able to get all the way back on their dominant arm, it's probably a sign that, you know, even if they are retrograde, they get a gross amount of instability to get that much internal rotation. And what's interesting, if you can, you can kind of take this observation and then you go and you look at the research. There was a really good study from Garrison in 2012 that basically showed that the looser you were, perhaps unsurprisingly, increased your risk of ulnar collateral ligaments. So if you have a three on a shoulder mobility score as a professional baseball player, you are, according to the research, you know, and it's a combination of multiple studies, more likely to need Tommy John. Um, so here's the thing. I still think FMS is a great screen. Why is that? Because that's used as part of a collection of other screens, right? Underneath that same umbrella, you've got a trunk stability push-up. You've got an inline lunge. You've got an active straight leg raise. You've got these tests that don't just heavily relate to flexibility or the range of motion screens that these hypermobile athletes can cheat. Instead, we have a bunch of checks and balances in place to make sure that we actually can tap into a lot of the range of motion that we have. And really what we're looking for with a lot of our screening that I think is, is really key is, is looking at active and passive differences, right? If we have someone who's got a, you know, 40 degree active straight leg raise and then passively they can go to 110 degrees, you know, that's, that's 70 degrees where an injury can really occur. So, we need to make sure that we don't just use screens that, you know, kind of naturally gravitate towards making really loose jointed individuals um, successful. Instead, we need to get them up and challenge them in weight bearing. We need to put them in positions 
that, you know, make it harder for them to, you know, demonstrate their motor control and existing range of motion or to control their center of mass inside their base of support so that we can really get a feel, you know, for why it is um, they, they move well or they don't move well. We just want some justification for what's in front of us. For point number five, I think we need to understand why something might feel tight. And, and you, you will have people who are hypermobile, who have a lot of range of motion, who do still feel tight. And we want to be mindful of this, that we're not just blindly stretching something. So, you know, when we look at it, there's a lot of different reasons that someone might be tight. So first, you know, true muscular shortness, right? This can happen if we have a young athlete who goes through a rapid growth spurt, you know, and their femur stretches out way faster than their, you know, their quads and their hamstrings can. Like those, those muscles are fundamentally short for the, the bony structures that they overlay. You know, certainly this can also be a consideration. We're talking about um, immobilization, you know, periods. They've done studies on, you know, rabbit and rat hind limbs where they, you know, mobilize them and they, they true, you know, do truly see muscular shortness. Um, you know, this could also be someone who's been sitting at a desk for a really, really long time, or, you know, an athlete who's been post-surgically, you know, not managed maybe correctly. And a lot of the, the tissue shortness has taken place over after a, you know, period of immobilization. So that would be the first thing, probably not super common in the populations we're talking about. Um, but it could be an issue if you have an athlete who's, um, you know, who's got a big old bone spur on the underside of their elbow and their elbows, you know, been stuck in 20 degrees of flexion for long enough, they might actually, you know, have true muscular shortness in some of those elbow flexors that have been, you know, locked there for an extended period of time. Certainly osseous, you know, or bony alignment can be an issue. So, you know, if we have an athlete who lays down bone spurs in their elbow or from more acetabular impingement and that their hip, you know, they're actually developing bone that is blocking their ability to, to move. Um, and they may feel tight in their hips because they're effectively running out of space in, in which they can move. So we have to be mindful of this, this osseous, you know, slash bony alignment, but it's not just extra bone. You know, if I'm someone who's in a raging anterior pelvic tilt and I get try to go into hip flexion if my hips you know don't posteriorly pelvic tilt to allow some some space to occur in the front my, my femur is you know effectively trying to work you know through a system that's out of alignment and this is one of the the key kind of tenets of the posture restoration institute and ron haraska its founder was a great guest previously so i, I definitely encourage you to give a listen to his podcast where he talked about you know, what is and isn't normal asymmetry. But if you have someone that's, you know, dramatically, you know, out of alignment, you know, doing a lot of stretching probably isn't going to get them better. Instead, we've got to, you know, do the right kind of positional breathing. We've got to realign the axial skeleton. We've got to get airflow manipulated and do all these creative things just to get them back to this semblance of neutral. So, you know, if you think about driving a car really fast when it's out of alignment, you're going to cause other problems. And if you stretch a system that's completely out of alignment, you're probably going to create some kind of instability, you know, to, to build on a previous point. Um, certainly capsular issues can be, you know, a concern, probably more so in a, you know, in an older population, you know, you'll see a lot of, you know, posterior hip capsule stiffness and, and people who have prolonged hip mobility limitations. Certainly we'll see capsular changes and, you know, adult rotator cuff repairs and things like that. Probably not something I'm super concerned with, with a younger population, but it does warrant consideration that sometimes the, the limitations can be because of capsular stiffness. So the actual, you know, ligament structures at a joint don't have enough give to them. Um, you know, and then neural tension is something as well, right? We'll see people who injure an intervertebral disc, you know, they've, they've got a herniation or something and they get this feeling of tightness into their legs, right? Where it's, it's radiating down. And, you know, last thing you want to do is stretch out neural tension. So I would see a lot of, you know, ulnar nerve symptoms in baseball players that might get worse when people aggressively stretch the shoulder and the neck. 
if those nerves aren't gliding the way that they should, or they're, you know, they're transiently irritated, you can, you know, set them back by doing a lot of stretching. You know, we also have to appreciate, you know, previous injury and, you know, associated soft tissue restrictions. You know, you pull your same, you know, your hamstrings, you know, five times over the course of five years. There's probably some very dense, nasty fibrotic tissue there. And that's why, you know, manual therapy can be such a, you know, a crucial inclusion in a rehabilitation program to, to teach those tissues to deform the right way. And, you know, it's kind of a cool time just because the research we're getting in the fascial community on, you know, how people respond to things like dry needling and cupping and, other interventions is getting more and more clear over the years. So it's an exciting time to appreciate how we might be able to impact some of these things in a more favorable light and, and actually have a good podcast guest coming up that I think will be a really intriguing in this regard. Um, protective spasm is another thing, right? If you throw your back out, you know, you'll see scenarios where people are really locked down and they don't want to bend over. They don't want to rotate. They don't want to do anything, but they didn't necessarily lose range of motion, right? They, they didn't, you know, get into a situation where it wasn't going to come back. Um, instead there's just this two to day, three day period where maybe they get some manual therapy or, you know, they get muscle relaxers, they, they get some kind of pharmacological intervention and it settles down. So it's, it's a tightness that you probably don't want to just stretch out. But the last one that I think is the most important thing that we're seeing in, in, in is the most applicable to this discussion of joint hypermobility slash laxity is protective tension. Um, a lot of times we see people laying down trigger points um, and, you know, kind of this artificial stiffness in places where they otherwise lack, you know, basically stability, where they don't have motor control. So the, the best example I use a lot in the throwing population is you know, going to any major league locker room or really any baseball locker room, and you're going to see a lot of low right shoulders. And, you know, I, I alluded to the posture restoration institute. This is kind of what we would call a classic left AIC, right BC posture. You see a lot of low right shoulders, people stuck in scapular depression on their dominant side. Um, but what's really intriguing is a lot of these individuals will feel like kind of this chronic upper trap tightness. Um, and, and what's unique about it is they're stuck in scapular depression. The, the upper traps are completely lengthened, but they always seem to want to get massaged on the upper trap and, you know, levator scap, all these things that, that theoretically, if they were released are actually going to allow you to get lower and lower. So the question then becomes, you know, what's actually happening? Well, that's their body laying down trigger points in their upper trap to create stability where otherwise lacks it. So the better play with these individuals is, is actually to do, treat the exact opposite side of the joint. Go down and, you know, take down some tone in, in lat and Terry's major and long head of the triceps, some of that musculature and, you know, and certainly the, the fascial lines on the inferior aspect of the joint that will allow them to get better scapular upward rotation, better shoulder flexion, and then follow it up with some good exercises that, that really make it stick. Um, and these people feel a lot better. You know, it's one more reason why you don't stretch out a lot of like chronic hamstrings tightness, you know, instead go give them some anterior core control, give them some glute activation, you know, understand how to be stable in the range of motions they have and good things happen. So, you know, a key lesson here is just don't chronically stretch out protective tension. You know, instead, when you think you might need to, you know, maybe do a little bit of light soft tissue work um, just to get them feeling better or, or treat the opposite side of the joint. Treat something that's going to allow them to, to rediscover you know, good quality movement and certainly follow it up with kind of the right activation exercise, the right strength work, you know, to drive them into much better patterns. We interrupt this episode with a quick reminder that this podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's an NSF certified all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food source ingredients designed to support your body's nutritional needs. I use this product daily and a ton of our athletes do as well. 
Head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and claim my special offer today for 10 free travel packs with your first purchase. I'd encourage you to give it a shot too, especially because of this great offer and because it gives you peace of mind knowing that you're covering all your nutritional bases. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y to get that special offer. Now, for point number six, I think it's important that we appreciate that joint hypermobility is really just part of a bigger overall picture of collagen deficiency. So we talk about why don't people have stiffer joints It's because they don't make collagen like everyone else, right? And, and really collagen is vitally important across your entire body. It affects skins, joints, muscles, ligaments, but also visceral organs, blood vessels, your eyes, and a host of other factors. So what's really intriguing is we see these hypermobile individuals and we actually see a higher incidence of hernia, uh, gastrointestinal reflux, detached retinas, things along those lines. And what's intriguing is there's a great read by, by Shaitel and Jelani called uh, Clinical Applications of Neuromuscular Techniques, Volume 1. And they, they dig in really closely on a lot of these concepts of hypermobile individuals. They're the ones that talk about, you know, trigger points, offering an efficient means of creating, you know, kind of short-term stability in, in otherwise unstable areas. But one of the things that they observe is that hypermobile individuals often present with chronic pain syndromes and an increased in ten- tendency to anxiety and panic attacks. So the question then becomes why? Um, well, if you think about what these individuals need in order to stabilize these loose joints, they need muscular recruitment. What tells your muscles to, you know, to fire up and to stabilize joints? Well, it's your, your sympathetic nervous system. It's epinephrine, norepinephrine, these, these stress hormones that get us going. And, you know, these are the same things that, that honestly make us a little bit more constantly wired, you know, a little bit more high energy, always on the go, things along those lines. And, and so what we have to be mindful of is, you know, is, is not just that these, these folks are going to be more prone to those issues, but there may be even more, uh, you know, downstream effects that we have to consider in the context of, of athletes. You know, it's going to be harder for them to get quality sleep. They may struggle to recover. So when I see a hypermobile individual on an evaluation, I'm usually doing, doing a little bit more of a sport science uh, dive than I otherwise would, right? I want to know a lot more about sleep quality and things like that, that I might normally pry on an initial evaluation. Because in many cases, if you can take care of some of those things, it's going to have this, this huge downstream effect. So, um, you know, just be mindful of when you get that individual and you get the health history in front of you and maybe you see some anti-anxiety, excuse me, anti-anxiety medications, you shake their hand and their hands freezing cold, their wrists are popping. And then they sit down in the chair and their foot's tapping like crazy. I'm immediately starting to think that this is someone who's, who's going to test as a nine out of nine on the bait and score and have tons of shoulder, you know, range of motion that might be more concerning. Um, you know, Dr. Alan Posinke is a, is someone who's written quite a bit in, in the realm of joint hypermobility. His, his stuff is great online. And he makes a comment that to compensate for stretchy blood vessels and increased venous pooling, um, most people with hypermobility appear to make extra adrenaline, which may account for the high energy, always on the go lifestyles of many hypermobile people. He also goes on to say that because too much blood is pooling instead of circulating, people with joint hypermobility syndromes usually have cold hands and feet or low or low normal blood pressure in addition to lightheadedness on standing. So all these things kind of relate together. Collagen deficiency can create a, a collection of different things. Um, you know, he also has observed about how fibromyalgia is, is very common among those with hypermobility. And it makes perfect sense. If you've dealt with folks who have, 
you know, fibromyalgia, it usually starts as one joint then becomes a second and then a third and it kind of moves around. And we realize about people who are really hypermobile is they can just easily slip into bad patterns. So if you have one joint that's bothering you, it can almost create this kind of like a helicopter effect where, you know, you try to offset it by weight bearing differently or altering your movements. And so you can get into much worse patterns when you have a lot more issues. And it becomes this kind of perpetuating cycle when it's, you know, an individual who has a hard time toning down, they may, um, you know, have an increased, you know, level of, um, you know, anxiety about the actual, in, you know, issues, you know, these people, you know, you know, they'll often talk about being constantly thirsty. They'll be lightheaded. They may have, you know, palpitations. So there's a lot of stuff going on. And, you know, certainly we know that there's, you know, increased risk of degenerative disc disease because the discs are, you know, are more rich or less rigid. There's just so many different factors, increased bruising, um, that we have to be mindful of in these populations that are really, really important, but I would take it a step further and, and recognize that, uh, you know, this, and this builds on some of our evaluation discussions from before is for me, one of the really big slam dunk kind of observations that has been a game changer in the past is, you know, not just looking at all these big things as part of a picture, but when I see someone who is, you know, blatantly hypermobile, who we recognize with it, but then they have very limited motion in one place. So as an example, if I have someone who's crazy loosey-goosey, you know, 220 degrees of shoulder total motion. They sit in a crazy scapular depression and then I check them and their shoulder flexion is really limited. If you're, you've been hypermobile for a long time and you don't have near full shoulder flexion, it's a sign to me that you've been in a bad pattern for a really, really long time. That you've actually almost been able to, you know, create some tissue extensibility changes um, in a negative direction in someone who, who is collagen deficient. So anytime I see a crazy hypermobile person that's actually lost motion, I'm going to dig in a lot deeper on that joint than I might have otherwise done it if it was maybe a normal range of motion person. And, and that leads into the point number seven is remember that structural deficits may exacerbate your laxity. So on one hand, if you're really hypermobile, you're probably more susceptible to ankle sprains and, and UCL injuries or, you know, labral tears and things along those lines. Um, but you know, flipping the, that in the opposite direction. So it's kind of the chicken and the egg thing is that some of these structural deficits may actually exacerbate your laxity. So we know the ulnar collateral ligament is, a, you know, is an important restraint to valgus stress at the elbow, right? You don't want your, your hinge joint to basically have to take on too much stress and, you know, in other planes. But what we do know is that the UCL actually is a, a weak resistor to elbow hyperextension. So if we have an athlete who hyperextends like crazy when they throw a baseball or when they do their pushups or whatever it may be, and then we layer a, in, you know, an old, you know, calcified ulnar collateral ligament injury, or something to that effect, or, you know, a labral tear that's going to mechanically take down the stability at the shoulder. We're probably more susceptible to having setbacks, um, you know, with those joints, um, simply because it's going to be more range of motion to control and less passive restraints that can protect us. For point number eight, there are vital training considerations. So this is probably going to be my biggest point of the night that can go in a number of different directions. But, you know, big picture, our training considerations focus on that. The idea that you're trying to build motor control in the range of motion that's present 
rather than trying to establish more range of motion. So what we do know is, is a lot of these individuals, it's easier to get them to neutral. Why is that the case? Because they have less, you know, passive stiffness to overcome, whether that's from ligaments, you know, or from the muscles and tendons, you name it. It's generally easier to get there. And, and in many cases, cueing alone often works. So in other words, you're not going to have to do a ton of soft tissue work and positional breathing and, you know, capsular stretches and all these different things. The only hard part is that it's a lot harder to keep them there. You know, you give someone who's got a little bit of passive stiffness to fall back on the right motor control, you get them locked in and they kind of hold it. One of the things that you'll see in a lot of these hypermobile individuals is you might find yourself teaching them the same thing over and over again. You have to really reaffirm it just because they have so many things that in their lives that can really pull them into to bad patterns. So, you know, I, I hate to say it, but they don't tend to be quick learners just because it takes so much um, more volume, so many more reps to get these patterns a little bit more ingrained just because they're working with a larger range of motion that they have to control. And, you know, they're, they're always trying to find their way a little bit. Um, I, I would say though that, you know, you do need more stability in this population. You need to work harder to stay away from end range. And the reason is simple is they're, they're more likely to slip into bad patterns, both physically and physiologically, right? So, you know, there's, there's a functional and a structural component to this is if I, if I'm talking about straightening my elbow, you know, I have joint receptors that tell me where my, my arm is in space, and, you know, in a normal folk, you know, they're, they're telling us when I'm 10 degrees short of, of zero degrees, Hey, you're getting close to elbow extension. When I can hyperextend my elbow, you know, much further past it, I'm not getting the same feedback from my joint receptors. Their, their, their normal is different than what it probably should be. But then, you know, physically, just from a pure range of motion standpoint, there's more area to control. Um, so we probably need to work a lot harder with these individuals, not just in building strength, but also giving them some proprioceptive awareness. Things like rhythmic stabilizations can be really, really helpful in this regard. Um, you know, building on that, I would always say, remember, it's, it's better to be too tight than too loose. Um, this is something, you know, years and years ago, I went back and forth on and the longer I've been at it, the more I'd, I'd rather see someone have the right amount of stiffness than have no stiffness at all. Um, you know, building on this, you know, just remember, don't just stretch what's tight. You have to ask yourself why it's tight. So we, we outlined all those different factors, everything from, you know, bony blocks to capsular changes, to true muscular shortness, to protective tension, to neural and, uh, you know, tension to, you know, some kind of acute injury. All those things play into it. You have to ask why something's tight before you stretch something. Um, you know, we talked about optimizing recovery and systematically fluctuating training stress with hypermobile populations to give them a chance to, you know, to rebound. Um, you know, and there's, there's certainly a magic middle ground of, of how people feel, right? You're, you're definitely going to know, um, you know, what a hypermobile joint feels like. So, you know, a lot of those people who live in the middle are going to be people that, that benefit from kind of a good blend of, of mobility oriented stuff versus stability slash motor control exercises. Um, just some, some basic, uh, training strategies that have worked really well with hypermobile individuals in the past. Um, more isometrics and eccentrics, just giving them a chance to kind of own the range of motions they're in. Um, we've done more isometrics, I'd say with everybody in light of some of Keith Barr's great research. Um, but, you know, certainly our hypermobile individuals seem to work even better with it, um, you know, particularly because there's probably you know, some biochemical benefits, that, you know, for a, a collagen deficient population, even more than some of our other athletes would get. Um, another thing is really important is just always ask them where they feel it, because like we said, they can they can make good movement big, bad movements look good. Um, so always solicit feedback on where do you feel this? Where do you feel this? Um, but you're, you're, you're really just 
doing your best in the weight room to teach them to create tension in the right places. They'll often just, you know, slip and hang out at the joint end range. And instead we actually want an element of muscular strength that's going to, you know, protect them. Um, for point number nine, you know, from a mechanical standpoint, don't wait for a stretch that will never come and don't wait to hang out on passive end ranges. So a uh, best example I can give you is imagine a pitcher with a very, you know, externally rotated, or excuse me, I should say very retroverted shoulder on top of hypermobility. These are the guys that you, you put them on the table and you lay them back and there's, you know, 150 degrees of external rotation. It just goes back, you know, forever. They almost look like a, um, you know, pitching machine, one of those iron mics, just it goes and goes and goes. So um, one of the things that we'll often see with this population is they get in this habit of chasing early arm speed. So what will happen is they're almost rushing to find this end range of shoulder external rotation. Um, and, and they're notorious for spraying balls up and arm side. You know, sometimes they'll try to throw, you know, uh, you know, make a compensation for it and they'll throw accidental cutters, you know, as they make their adjustments. But, um, you know, these individuals tend to chase early arm speed. They, they often stiffen up too late. Um, you know, you'll often see this in like, you know, prepubescent, excuse me, prepubescent pitchers who are very hypermobile. They, they never really get firm on the lead leg. So, you know, there's, there's like these young loosey goosey across the board athletes that you need to give them good stability in the big picture. And then in more advanced athletes with tons of external rotation, you have to teach them not just to wait for their, you know, their external rotation stretch to happen when they're never really going to feel that length across their pec or their anterior shoulder or anything like that. Instead, we need to teach them how to use their hips to, to create good direction down the mound that allows their arm to settle into a position where they can really utilize, you know, some of that end range control, um, that we've worked hard in our training to develop. So, um, you know, this, this speaks a lot to some of the exercise selection that we're going to do. You know, we're going to use a lot of 90, 90 holds and ERIR transitions and things along those lines with everybody, but on our hypermobile athletes, we need to be really mindful of working back into a greater position of external rotation, really accommodating all of the positions that they may get to in their delivery. And finally, for consideration number 10, remember that you actually have to coach hypermobile athletes out of doing something they're really good at. These are the athletes where you turn your back for two seconds and they're in the corner, you know, tying themselves into a human pretzel. Um, these are the athletes that pregame are often doing like the four hour long cross body stretch in the outfield as they mindlessly stare off into the clouds when in reality they should be doing some, some good band work, some good rhythmic stabilization, something to create some kind of motor control in the existing range of motion they have. So, um, you really need to be mindful of, you know, tactfully counseling them into, Hey, you probably don't need to stretch. Um, you know, if there's someone who's naturally drawn to yoga, maybe you do more positions and weight bearing and things like that, as opposed to just doing a lot of stuff on the ground where they can kind of contort themselves in all kinds of crazy different positions. But in general, athletes gravitate towards things that they, they do well. Um, and hypermobile individuals are those ones that are, are naturally always going to be, you know, torquing themselves into crazy position. And they're often the ones that'll go to the, you know, the athletic trainer or the strength coach or whoever it may be to ask to get, you know, stretched aggressively, um, you know, in the pregame dynamic. So, you know, if they do have that kind of scenario, it's, it's probably them picking the scab just a little bit. Make sure you follow up any kind of, you know, passive flexibility initiatives or the right kind of activation exercises to make sure you're putting some good motor control in the system so that you can at least play for the tie with these individuals. Um, so those are my, my, my 10 bullet points uh, on joint hypermobility, um, you know, whether it's identifying it, assessing it, programming for it, training for it, understanding how it relates 
to the actual, you know, baseball world. And then also, you know, certainly some of the, the other factors, whether it's physiological, psychological, um, you know, training approaches, coaching styles that, that may relate to it. Um, if you are interested in learning more about this, I do have a more involved presentation that I did in um, our, our product, Functional Stability Training of the Upper Body. It's functionalstability.com. Um, so there's some good stuff there. Uh, and I also have you know quite a bit of stuff on my website and our YouTube pages and Instagram pages if you want to check out for some, some sample exercises. But I just can't tell you um, how underserved this population is, particularly in the baseball community. You know, if you go into pretty much any major league roster, you know, probably a third of your pitchers and, you know, some of your position players as well are going to be very, very loose, you know, and, and you don't want to treat them exactly like you treat the really, really tight guys. So, um, and, and obviously we have a lot of softball folks that listen to this as well. We mentioned that hypermobility is three times higher, um, in female athletes than it is in male athletes. So if we're, we're softball folks listening to this, there are a lot of key take homes, you know, understanding how you can help your athletes, maybe pulling back on a lot of the static stretching, doing more motor control closer to the end range. And keep in mind, you don't have to go all the way to the end range to get the benefits. You're probably going to get, you know, carryover on of 10, 15 degrees in each direction on isometric work. So lots of uh, low hanging fruit in this regard that you can pick if you understand how to identify it and, uh, and go from there. So hopefully you found this useful. And, um, you know, I, I appreciate everyone taking the time to listen to me blabber on about this, but it's a, pa- a topic that I'm very, very passionate about and um, certainly hope that this will help you and some of your athletes as you, you apply it. 